Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and joining me today is our new uh, lead for uh, paramedic promotion and engagement. What's professional your, de- Captain Professional Development. Captain of Professional Development. I can never get anyone's title right. This is Michael Wells Whitworth, and he's a, been an excellent addition in his short time here in the Department of Clinical Services. And we brought him in because, realistically, this was his... Uh, his idea. And what we're going to discuss today are some rules of the road for the new medic. And we're also on uh, video today, and we're going to try to post a video of this episode to our YouTube channel. So we're trying a couple new things today, so bear with us a little bit. But the idea for this podcast stemmed from really a pretty common question that we get around MCHD, especially here in the uh, here in the office, and that is, You know, new medics come into the service, they are familiar with the text, you know, they've not seen a ton of patients, and then they're unleashed with this astronomical uh, amount of information and tasks, operational, clinical, things that are really a combination of the two, and what are some solid kind of all-encompassing pieces of advice that we can give new medics as they start their career here at MCHD, or if you're listening out there, as folks start their career in EMS. And, you know, this is a, a, a huge bite. Um, there's, if, if I ask listeners out there to come up with their top 10, they could probably come up with 10 really good ones that are entirely opposite of ours. So we're not saying these are the right ones. We're not saying these are the only ones. These are just, you know, some of the things that, that Michael and I have, have tossed back and forth. And we'd love to hear listener input. Uh, who knows, the Rules of the Road for the New Medic may have Episode 2 or Episode 3 on down the line. Um, but let's roll right into our list, and we've kept this to a top 10 list, so we're going to uh, pay homage to my favorite talk show host, and that's David Letterman. And we'll start with number one, and that is Be On Time. And that that was mine. And realistically, I am the worst. Um, so I'm going to mea culpa here to start and say that you know, there's no better way to kill your reputation than to be a straggler, especially as a shift worker. And I really learned my lesson halfway into my career when I switched to strict emergency medicine night shifts. And as somebody who really for my whole life, I I mean, you know, like seventh grade forward, I was the last one into my seat in class. I was the last one into the parking lot as a junior in high school. I was the last one into Chem 101. Um, I just developed a bad habit of, of of being late and not, you know, egregiously late, just that one minute. And uh, around 2011, 2012, you know, I guess I was growing into an old dog. Um, I moved for family reasons into just working night shifts. And when you work uh, 8 p.m. to 6 a.m. and the morning doc shows up at 6.10, there's an extra level of the knife twist that goes into that. And, you know, as EMS workers, we're shift workers as well. Um, and it's just, uh, it's just a morale killer. So I'm not going to, there's not too much evidence-based stuff to talk about here or research. Just be early, be yeah. early, be early. It will, it will really help your reputation. Yeah. Not a, yeah. not a whole lot of magic not there, to, huh? Not a, a real magical trick there, but, uh, there's no better way to piss off your coworkers than, 
for a call to drop at 6.59 when crew change is supposed to be at 7 and not to be ready to, to take it for them. Um, showing up early, being on time, it, it shows that you're prepared for your job. Um, it's good for you, and it, it definitely makes you a fan with your coworkers. And you said the word, number yep. two, right there. Um, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. And that's a John Wooden quote. Um, John Wooden was the uh, you know, Hall of Fame uh, you know, multiple championship winning basketball coach at UCLA back in the sixties and seventies. And he said, failing to prepare is, or failing to prepare is preparing to fail. And being on time really is the start of that preparation. Right. And be diligent about your equipment checks, no matter how sure you are, make sure your batteries are charged, make sure your equipment is where it's supposed to be in your pack, whatever your pack looks like, whether it's a backpack or a duffel, whatever shape size your service uses. Um, not only are you prepared, uh, but you learn how the bag is set up that way. You learn how the truck is set up that way. You learn how the monitors look, you know, where are those vital sign values? Where is the sack going to pop up? You learn that by testing and preparing every single day, the ventilator, you know, you got downtime, learn how to hook it up, work with your in charge, work with your uh, your captain, whoever's on, on service that day. Use your downtime for something other than cartoons. I mean, I'm a king cartoon watcher, but podcasts, procedural mental rep, case discussions, debriefs with your partner, all those things are ways to use that idle time to your advantage as opposed to just, you know, kind of uh, being stagnant. And then when you learn where your bag is set up or how your bag is set up, you learn where and how your truck is set up, you start to learn your partner as a new medic, then you learn how to set your partner up, right? And that's that's really the kind of the next step of anticipation and anticipating what's next. And kind of talk about you, you've gone through this as, as a new medic to a more mm -hmm. seasoned medic. You know, I, I think airway setup's a good example. Yeah. You know, how do you, how did you transition in your career from, I'm gonna, I don't know what's going on, but I know they may need these pieces to, I kind of know what's going on, and I think he or she's going to ask for the bougie and the bag and the viral filter now. It's COVID, yep. so we're talking about COVID with masks on. Kind of yeah. kind of expound so, on that as, as, as a medic. I, for me, that kind of goes back to using your, your downtime a little bit. Um, you might be limited in your, in your scope of practice and the skills that you can perform, but you're never limited in how much you can learn. So using that downtime with your partner um, as a more seasoned medic now, when I get a new partner, one of the first things we do when we have downtime is we run through a, a, a mock uh, DSI intubation. We'll sit in the back of the truck in the station and I go, when I do a DSI, I have this person he sit here and that's their job. That person sits there, that's their job. On the counter, I lay out my tools, uh, plan A through plan Z, all on the on the counter in this order and that way when you know you you get that urgent call everybody's on the same page they know what you want they know what your expectations are um, and you can can be prepared for those urgent calls just by practicing and and working your way through things um, and kind of with knowing the the next step of the the next higher step in scope of practice brings you to uh, knowing your protocols that's number three in our list and, and realistically, that is, that is an, that's an expected thing, you know, here at MCHD, you know, from the medical director standpoint, if you're going to get hired on, I expect that you're going to take the protocols home. And, you know, I still say the book because I used to read these, there were these items that used to exist and they were sheets of paper and bound with, you know, glue 
um, at the at the end of the page and you would fold it and read on them papyrus paper books right i'm making a joke a bad joke here michael's like oh it's terrible um but you know realistically our protocols now exist on an app and you can look at it on your smart device so nobody's really looking at a book anymore but those protocols that exist that's that's kind of your bedrock and so if you're a new Medicare at MCHD, and I'm not going to speak for other medical directors out there, but I expect pretty quickly you to have the protocols down. And just like Michael said, you know, not everything in that book is in your purview, right, when you start. And we're going to have graduated level of advanced responsibility. And so, yeah, you may not be able to intubate on day one, but you need to know how the DSI protocol works so you can set up properly. So that takes us you know, back from number three, know your protocols to number two, know how to prepare. Well, if you don't know the protocol, how can you prepare? So this is going to be the bedrock of your clinical progression. Um, start with your level of credentialing, learn that cold, and then progress to the next level and so on. And that way you're ready when you make that step, but you're also ready as a good partner. Because if you don't know the DSI process, because you say to yourself, ah, I don't innovate, so I'm going to stick to compressions, right? Then you're really selling yourself short. Um, you know, concentrate on drug, dose, drug doses, concentrate on contraindications. Those are big, you know, big red, big red flags. And then know your procedural anatomy. Again, really important. And, you know, not that I'm cluing anyone in here, but those are key spots for exam questions, right? Yeah. Drug doses, drug contraindications, procedural anatomy. That's, that's a majority of test questions. Yep. What do you, what do you want to add yeah. there? Um, so, we, there's the, the old saying that, you know, paramedics may save lives, but basics save paramedics. When I worked at a different service where it was just me and an EMT basic, there were, you know, more than once where I was about to do something and my, my EMT partner elbows me and goes, hey, you, sh you sure you want to do that? I'm pretty sure the book says to do this. You know, they, knowing the entire book uh, after starting with your level is, is a great thing to do. And, you know, even once you get to the more advanced levels, even being a captain in the MCHD system, I can't do, you know, quite all of our procedures. I can't, I'm not authorized to do a field amputation, but I still know what that protocol says and and how to set up for it so that when the person gets on scene that can do it, uh, Dr. Dr. Patrick here, we're all set, we're ready to go, and we have everything in place for them to be able to do it. And realistically, setting up an environment to where you listen to your team, and you may be saying to yourself, well, we're not MCHD and our tiered system is a little bit different. This is a lesson as far as, being able to listen to each other and being able to give input, you know, it, this, this could be a, a nurse in, in a resuscitation bay to me as the physician. Uh, this could be, uh, uh, you know, one of our FRO partners on the scene, um, you know, as, as an MCHD captain, you know, there's varying ways to draw this scenario out just because you're the highest level provider. Um, you, that's the that's the least time that you should shut your ears off. That's when you really want your team able to say, hey, did you forget about, you know, PIPA 15 in the rule of 15s? And there's so many times in the hospital where uh, that happens to me. I was putting in a central line about six weeks ago, and I put in a million central lines, and it was a simple femoral uh, triple lumen catheter, uncomplicated. I can do one with my eyes closed in my sleep. Um and as I was working through the process, the nurse standing beside me was like, his name was Will, and he was like, hey, where's the wire? And I almost, I mean, literally, like, 
lost bowel continents and the wire was in the line and I was getting ready to pull, you know, I was getting ready to suture it in with the wire in. And so I had a mess on my hands that luckily I was able to salvage pretty easily. Um, but if I hadn't listened to the, to the nurse standing behind me, I, I mean, who knows what the disaster would have been. So always be willing to listen to your, to your team members. Um, and you know, they go a long way. Um, and you know, realistically for new medics, um, you have to, uh, build a house, right? I, I think growing in, in EMS, growing in, in emergency medicine and really, you know, any, you know, medical field or, or you know, whatever path you decide to take, I, the house analogy holds true a lot of times. And number four is, you know, you've got to pour your foundation before you start framing. Um, you know, you can't, you can't roof before you frame. Nobody's installing, you know, a shower head before there's a roof, Right. So your new medic self has to pour that foundation. So I think you hit it on the head with, uh, you know, the importance of, of good BLS skills. And that's really all of our foundations, whether you're an emergency physician, a, uh, you know, captain here at MCHD, wherever you are, your BLS foundations are going to save you every time. And so learn how to bag well. And that's really, if you take one point out of this entire talk, uh, it is the most important and difficult skill that is underrated and underappreciated if, if i had to rank it's it's the ability to do good bag valve mask and everybody Absolutely. will everybody will look at you and tell you they're really good at it and then when you watch them do it they do it terribly and that's in the hospital that's emergency physicians i'm not talking strictly about medics here um and going along with that learn how to position and reposition the airway, right? If you keep doing the same thing in a rescue airway attempt and the patient's still desatting and still decompensating, you've got to reposition. Know how to reposition. You know, chin lift, jaw thrust. You know, I, I wish one handbag would be just eliminated and created into a crime because I think two handbag is, is the key here. Um, but, you know, learn how to look at a situation and say what we're doing here is not working. What are the simple things we can change? And so many times that's just positioning of the patient. And then, you know, good chest compressions, right? Good BLS chest compressions. What do we know saves lives in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest? We, you know, we've been working on Esmolol and refractory VF here at MCHD, double sequential defibrillation. You know, is it a supraglottic airway? Is it an endotracheal intubation? Epinephrine, do we time the doses differently? There's all these things. We look at all these interventions and what's the one thing that we know saves lives? CPR. CPR, we'll say it again. So BLS skills have saved infinitely, infinitely more lives than any uh, video laryngoscope or surgical airway. So don't underestimate the importance of those and learning them and practicing them. I know they've saved you over and over. Pick, <laughs> many, pick, pick any many, story out you yeah, want to tell. Any story usually starts with, with BLS skills saving the day. Um, so, you know, you're a brand new medic. You've got your, in the state of Texas, you've got your red patch on your shoulder. Um, you're ready to intubate and a lot of services. You're ready to DSI. You've got a patient who's walking the room, their, their airway effort is almost non-existent. Their SATs are in the fifties. You know, you're ready to intubate this patient. What's the first thing you're going to do to have a good outcome? You got to bag them up. You got to get that SpO2 and pre-oxygenate and the nitrogen washout and all of those complex things starts with just uh, the basic maneuver of, of ventilating them. You can't use your red patch skills until you get those blue patch skills mastered and taken care of to get you to where you can do the advanced sort of things. Um, and you know, some of the times the best way to learn those 
is to, to find a mentor, somebody to latch on to, somebody that does things well. You can really pay attention to them. I like uh, anybody out there, uh, National Geographic watchers. My youngest is is a uh, is an animal guy, and so he knows about lots of animals that I don't. So I learn a lot from him. And one of his favorites is the lamprey. I wasn't a super lamprey expert until the last eight months or so ago, but they're uh, oh, fish, I think, and they latch onto sharks, and they don't make any noise, and they don't really bother the sharks. They're just kind of always there. And uh, realistically, you know, your service, if it's a high functioning service, you're going to have lots of sharks. And I don't mean sharks in a bad way. I mean, the, you know, think about sharks and how smooth they swim. And, you know, they're kind of efficient hunters and they, you know, they, they don't really waste a whole lot of motion or energy. And so you want to find the folks in your service that are smooth operators like those sharks and watch how they work. And you want to listen to how they talk to patients, how they talk to families. That's Realistically, you know, communication and communication with patients is one of those things that you're not going to get out of your paramedic textbook or your emergency medicine textbook for that that matter. And that's a skill that really is, I feel like, most learned by watching others and watching how others do it well. And so find those people in your service who are good communicators. Copy their scripts, you know, their sayings, their little anecdotes and the things that make patients laugh. I've copied so many things from probably not listening out there, but Tyler Stepsis was a co-resident of mine and he had a way every patient loved him. And he had all these little things that he would say to patients. And I copied half of them because I worked with him for several years after residency and imitation is the greatest form of flattery. And I can still remember the things he says to patients, you know, um, patient uh, refusals are always a difficult spot. And how do you get a patient to go with you and do what they want? And when you watch somebody redirect, you know, calm an agitated grandmother or perform death telling, another big one, you know, it's really, really uh, emotional and hard when you do it for the first time. When you watch somebody do it with empathy and grace, save that tidbit, write it down. You know, again, be like that little lamprey, right? You're not noisy. You're not really bothering the shark. You're just there and you're listening and you're kind of a fly on the wall. And um, again, these, these parts, you know, how to tell somebody that they're, their loved one has passed, you know, how to, how to get a patient to come to the hospital when they don't want to because they're scared or nervous, you know, uh, not a textbook chapter for that. So watch the sharks in your service, learn from them. Mentorship, you know, comes in lots of different sizes and shapes, but mentorship's also not unidirectional. It involves you being an active follower, an active listener, and without being annoying. And that's, you know, that's, that's where you have to kind of read the room and be a judge. How, how, how do you feel like that's best balance as far as being a good mentee without being an, an aggravator? Yeah, um, a lot of times that's, that's all about the timing of when you ask your questions. You know, in, watch and observe in the moment, you know, while they're having that, that difficult refusal conversation with a family member and trying to re- redirect all of that. Watch in the moment, uh, soak it up like a sponge. And then after the call, you know, be like, hey, how, how did you know to do that? How did you, you know, develop those skills? How can I learn from you? It's all about the, the timing of, of when you do it. Um, and and kind of like that, that mentorship thing, finding those people that, that really inspire you. Before I applied to MCHC, I did an observation shift here. Um, a bit of a shout out to, to Captain Ritchie and now Deputy Chief Goodrich. We ran a call uh, for a car accident and 
Deputy Chief Goodrich got on scene and Captain Ritchie and him did some sort of magic uh, sign language thing from 100 yards away and coordinated this whole big car accident. And I was like, wow, that being able to work with your coworkers, manage things that smoothly like that sincerely impressed me. And so those people that make you say, wow, are the are the sharks that you want to latch on to learn from and and really develop those skills i think that's totally totally stellar advice probably piece two that i would take from this if you're not going to take anything else wait until the dust settles and the coast clears and the commotion has died down before you want to debrief and you ask those questions it, that time to have that discussion and to talk through it is never really in the moment and i see that mistake made by medical students by residents by young medics is in the heat of battle, in the heat of the moment, they're asking you, so why did you give that? Like, not right now. Like, wait until after everything settles, and then everyone's so much more willing to share knowledge and to share their experience. Uh, so that takes us through five. We'll hit on number six. We're halfway there. And this one is probably going to date myself here, so so be it. I guess this is now a classic rock song, but this is a, a song of my youth, and I think we should all listen to Axl Rose. And you may be telling yourself, first of all, who is Axl Rose? Axl Rose is the singer of a rock band, Guns N' Roses. Um, if you're my age, which I'm not going to tell you what it is, uh, you know Guns N' Roses and Axl Rose. Um, but probably their most famous song gets covered every now and again by some youngster is Patience. And the line in the song is, all we need is just a little patience. And no, we're not going to the jungle if you know Welcome to the Jungle. Um, we're talking about patience. And one of the mistakes I see new learners and new medics make uh, fairly frequently is on day one, they're asking me how to be a captain. And I think it's fine to have dreams and goals, but you have to be reasonable and you have to pace yourself. You know, you can't become a chief six months after completing NEOP. That's just, that's unrealistic. Don't set unrealistic goals. You know, if you've been on the couch for a couple of years and you go out for a jog and you decide you're going to run a marathon in two weeks, you're probably not going to get there. So learn the progression and the timing of those steps, and they're going to vary based on your service and how your service is structured, and then structure your goals around those reasonable periods. And then when you have a, an idea of how you want to take those steps, then have a plan. Don't be too overzealous. You know, be reasonable because you need to give yourself time to grow into each of those roles. And you don't go from a neop to a captain without some experience. And the one non-negotiable for me from an educational standpoint, we can talk about tons of different educational theory, you know, ideas and thoughts. But in medicine, you have to have patient contacts. And you can't get patient contacts in a lump sum. You have to get them in a linear fashion. It's just the way that it works. And you cannot be a strong clinician without a big load, of a suitcase full of patient contacts. So be patient. Yeah. Uh so when I started in EMS, you know, I, I was working with some people and they'd walk into a room and with that about saying three words to the patient, they were like, oh, it, it's this. I need this. This is my plan. These are the next three steps that we're going to do. And I was blown away. It was magic. How they do that. Yeah. What? Wizards of medicine being able to do that. And then after, you know, four or five thousand patient contacts over the years, you you can do the same thing. You can do it from the dispatch notes. You know, you from the dispatch notes, you can most of the time, once you're experienced enough, have a decent plan 80% of the time and then just tweak it when you get on scene and do your, do your patient assessment. It's that pattern recognition, repeatability, and, and building on all of those different patient contacts that really turns you from a, a new 
a fresh out of school paramedic into one that's experienced and competent. So realistically, rule seven is almost the opposite of rule six, yep. right? Axel Rose said, all we need is just a little patience. But and we need lots of patients. Lots of patient contacts, right? And that's, you know, we get to things like, uh, you know, Malcolm Gladwell talks about the 10,000 hour rule. We can debate the validity of Gladwell and, you know, Gladwell's methods, but I, I really feel like in medicine, my experience, watching others, watching trainees, watching training programs, uh, you have to see the patients. You have to see lots of them. You have to take opportunities to see them. And I would argue, force yourself to see and, and be the lead on the calls you're most uncomfortable with. Then you gain those uncomfortable calls, you go home after the shift, and then you can avoid random study. And what's random study? That's where you pick up a text and flip to chapter three. And we've all done that, and sometimes we have to do that. But random study on the hierarchy of study to me is the, is the lowest level. If you use your patience as a study guide, topics will stick with you because you can associate a face and you also associate those emotions, right? The, the smell and the sound and how you felt. Those are important markers, I think, for our brain and retention. Um, so if you use your patience as a study guide, you're going to have a leg up. And, you know, that's just, I think, I think it's key. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how many of us have, have read about something like, uh, I'm, I'm definitely guilty of this. You know, you go and read about toxicardiomyopathy and then the next shift in your mind, you're trying to diagnose somebody with it because you've never seen a patient like that. When you just read out of the textbook, you don't have any idea what that patient looks like in real life. Whereas if you go the other way and you have a patient, they have something going on that you don't have a lot of knowledge about and you study about it. Now you know what that patient looks like in real life and you have the book knowledge to go with it and you're, you're that much stronger for, for being able to handle it next time. And then at the end of your run, no matter what run you're on, if you look in your chapters and you realize you haven't flipped open chapter two and chapter 12, then you can go back and randomly read those. Yep. But uh, directed reading based on patient contacts, it's just, there's just the retention is better. Make that part of your, your regular sort of practice and habits. Changing directions from, you know, your learning to your attitude. Uh, number eight is one that I've really, again, being on time is one that I've learned over my career. Uh, number eight, I've really had to learn over my career based on my own actions and actions uh, from me. And that is treat other providers with respect at all times. You know, keep that high ground, no matter how angry or how, uh, you know, viscerally upset you get. And that's first responders, that's law enforcement, that's nurses, that's bystanders, that's, you know, other doctors. It just it's going to wear you out to constantly fight personal battles on scene. What do we care about on scene? Do we care about our ego? I mean, we do, but we should put that last. I mean, I think to say that we don't care about our own egos is probably not true. I mean, we all do, but it has to go at the bottom. What goes at the top? The patient. And if you keep patient care as your primary goal, your primary driver at all times during all interactions, it really is going to help keep you level. You know, descriptions of provider disagreements, they don't go in the patient chart, right? That's, right. that's for a private email, unusual occurrence here at MCHD. Uh, you know, a unified team that's focused on patient care and open to growth is the single best tool for patient care. You know, to handle those disagreements off scene, after the fact, away from patients. It doesn't mean that we have to, you know, then the reply is, you know, like the bullheaded side of me says, what, you're just telling me to take it? Well, that's what I have to do? 
and I, you know, I've practiced as a, as a battle fighter and it's just, it wears you out. Like I, I really, let's, you know, go back to my mom, God rest her soul, you know, pick your battle, son. You can't fight them all. Right. And I've worked trying to fight them all and it's, it's tiring, you know? So when you really need to stand up for your nurses, you really need to stand up for your medics. You know, you really need to dig your heels in. Those times show themselves, but they're not in every single little petty interaction. Right. How have you experienced yeah. that? I would say that uh, almost never, very, very, very rarely, is anybody trying to act malicious. Um, even when you're, you're working with a, a coworker or a first responder or a nurse or somebody that, to your mind, has done the most boneheaded, stupid decision ever in medicine, 99 time, or 999 times out of 1,000, they weren't doing it maliciously. They're trying to do the best they can with the, strengths of, with the constraints of um, you know, their, their training or the, how their day has been or their stress levels. Um, so, so try to, to, to get out of your own head and see that you know, maybe they were still doing the best they can even though they may not have made the right decision. And for me, having that empathy to see how other people are coming from makes it a lot easier to, you know, if they're, if they're in a way that I can train them up and coach them for, for the next time, then, then we can address that. Uh, or if they're outside my team and I don't have any control over them, then, then just to kind of move on and take care of the problem the best that I can. Or maybe that's a, maybe that's a professional issue you bring to the medical director exactly. and say, hey, I had this interaction with a nurse or another physician. And maybe that's from the back end, not in the moment, not in front of the patient, but you bring it back around to, to me or to Dr. Dixon and you say, hey, this person was really difficult and can you look into it? And maybe that person's having, you know, personal problems. Maybe it's, you know, substance use, maybe it's a divorce, maybe it's uh, mental health, depression or anxiety. You know, there's so many things that can go on in people's lives. And as somebody who struggled through that personally, you know, when things, things are falling apart in your personal life, oftentimes your professional life is not neat and tidy. And so I really think the key in that one is to operate under the assumption from the get go, every interaction that everybody around you is trying their best for the patient. Yeah. And you're going to find times that they're not, but I'll promise you they're rarer than what you think. It's going to be somebody whose kid is sick, whose uh, mother is dying, whose uh, depression is, is worsening, whose substance use is worsening, who's going through a divorce. There's always something like that underneath those interactions. And that doesn't mean it's excused, but just, assume that that's what's going on. And I think it makes that empathy easier um, to, I, to, I agree. to pull up. And then if you go through all those check boxes and you're like, no, that person's just a liar or a stealer or fraudulent or, or just a class A jerk, get to that as almost a diagnosis of exclusion is the way I feel. I agree. I agree. Almost nobody's waking up in the morning going, I want to be mean to my coworkers today. So <laughs> I cannot say it any better than that. So as an EMS provider, as an emergency physician, one of the most important things as we get close to number 10, we're on number nine here. And rule number nine here is what happens next. And, exactly. I, don't, and I don't mean what happens next in the podcast. I mean, one of the things that helps fulfill me as an emergency physician is learning what happens to my patients and having avenues set up so I can find that information out. And realistically, this is a huge hole in the system, both in EMS and in emergency medicine in that we don't get enough feedback. But let me give you a case. I'll give you a 38-year-old uh, that has crushing chest pain. You get the AKG and you're like, oh man, there's diffuse ST depression and elevation in AVR. What do you say? 
Uh, probably pericardi- pericarditis. Or it could be a STEMI equivalent. Yep. Or it could be uh, a PE, mm-hmm. right? A pretty interesting EKG, young yep. patient. Could be lots of things. You take it to the hospital, you drop it off, you never hear about it. Is that sustaining or fulfilling at all? No, no. no. But if you get a call from the cardiologist that says, hey, you activated that case because you're kind of concerned about it and they had a 100% RCA or what, you know, LAD, whatever it may be, is that, does that give you more oomph going into the next day? Absolutely. Absolutely. So be hungry for follow up, you know, actively seek it out. Admittedly, our systems are not set up as well as they should be. And I say that as an emergency physician who knows that he needs to give better feedback to his medics and who is working in my EMS role to try to set up systems to do that better. You know, technology is going to be a key here. We need to use it instead of locking it down and creating all these silos, you know, because we're all part of the care continuum. But I find sometimes I send patients to the cath lab and the cardiologist doesn't call back down, you know, to the ED. And then I'm walking around the rest of the shift. What happened to that, that lady or that guy? And when they call back down and say, hey, that was a 99% left main man. That was a widow maker. Nice call. You know, that, that helps me. That keeps me going. Why should I not expect the same thing, you know, for our medics? And when you learn what happens after you drop them off, to me, whether that's dropping them off in the sense of you're an EMS uh, paramedic and you drop them off to the ED, or whether you're an emergency doc and you drop them off to the hospital floor or the ICU, it gives you an idea how better to take care of those patients while you have them. You know, pathological bradycardia gets an emergency pacemaker. You know, shocky GI bleeds get, get blood and a scope after they're resuscitated. Yeah. You know, what's the workflow for trauma activations, for stroke activations? You know, it's important for me to know the next step as the emergency physician, not to be a cardiologist or to be a gastroenterologist, but to understand how I work within the system and knowing that next step or having an idea of it is important. Yeah, absolutely. The, so from an EMS side, if I know what's going to happen for that patient, uh, it, I can start to prepare them for it. So, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I had a patient with a severe, severe postpartum hemorrhage after a, a C-section. She had a C-section a week ago and, you know, woke up with, with some severe hemorrhage. On the way to the hospital, I can start, you know, saying, hey, just so you know, when we get there, there's going to be a bunch of people moving around. Um, you know, you might get some blood. Absolute worst case, if they can't stop the bleeding, might end up needing to go to surgery. And, and kind of talk through some of those fears and some of those possible outcomes with them and, and get them prepared. It's a lot easier from the patient side of things to know the worst case scenario and know there's a small chance of it happening than it is to get blindsided by it an hour later as they're they're rushing off to surgery that expectation setting is so important very important and it can happen in the ems setting it can happen in the you know in the ed setting but giving a patient an idea of what's coming next the fear is all about what's going on right right? and if i know okay i'm having a heart attack holy cow all right they're attacking me with these stickers and these ivs because they're going to go check my plumbing Mm -hmm. okay and if my plumbing's blocked they're going to put in a a metal stent that opens it up. Okay. Yep. That, that's, that's really cool. I'm scared, but at least I know what's next. Exactly. I think that expectation setting, and it can be done, but it can only be done if you have a pretty good idea of what's next and you know how the system yeah. works. So that's not something that you're going to know on day one as a new medic. And that expectation is going to really accumulate over time as you, mm-hmm. you know, as you deliver patients. But I, I do think it takes a focused effort by a new medic or a new emergency physician, you know, resident trainees out there to ask your 
handoff folks, whether it's the ED and the, in the, you know, in the paramedic sake, or whether it's the cardiologist, you know, or the neurointerventionalist, you know, what happened? What happened? What was next? And, and, and insert that question into your vocabulary. What's next? What happened? You know, how did it go? Uh, Make that something that you seek out and that will provide you a lot of fulfillment and valuable knowledge to take care of your, your uh, patients. And, that leads us really right into number 10, our last one, and that is to learn how to effectively communicate with other professionals. And that can be tough. I mean, um, emergency physicians can be total jerks, you know, uh, tired, night shift, overworked, bust in waiting rooms, COVID-19, you know, masks and, you know, all the stuff that we have to deal with in the hospital setting. You know, I'm not making excuses for anybody being a jerk, but it's a stressful time in all of healthcare right now. Now, as a medic, you're saying, yeah, we'll deal with staffing shortages and PPE on the truck and, you know, all the things that we have to deal with in people's homes right now, getting the patients to the ED. You're lucky you don't have to deal with all that. And you're correct when you, when you, if you said that. But report preparation and learning how to exist in those, you know, differing level of, of, you know, professional certifications and environments that we have to operate in. That's a really, uh, it's a dicey proposition at times. And so, you know, accept feedback when it's negative, learn how to give the important parts of the report and not ramble. And that serves for me too. The cardiologist doesn't want me to tell them about the patient's vaccination status. They want to hear about the EKG and their pain pattern. And what do they look like right now? And what do they, you know, what do you want from me? Um, they don't care if their hot water heater is set at 140 yeah. degrees or their dog was barking, right? Exactly. Um, you yeah. know, and, and so that, that scripting is important. You know, you're going to say a lot of the same things over and over and over again. So when I say scripting, I mean, you know, using similar patterns and similar approaches to a trauma activation or a STEMI report. You're going to give 100, 1,000 of them in, in your career. Why make it different every time? Streamline it to the important to the important info. Right. Yeah, I would say that scripting for me is probably the single most important thing about my patient and other provider interactions. Um, if we go back to, to part of number nine with the, you know, setting expectations for your patients when you drop them off, I've given my my little spiel of you know to the sixty six year old woman who takes Eliquis and fell and bumped her head. And it's pretty much fine, but she's still a trauma alert based off the hospital's criteria. Given the, okay, when we get there, there's going to be about 300 people waiting for you. And as soon as they realize what you and I both know, that you're not dying, they'll all go away and leave you alone. It really sets those expectations. And your patients are, even though it's maybe the same kind of routine for you every time, they don't know your jokes. You can use the same joke with everybody. You can use the same script with everybody. And it sounds like they crafted it, you crafted it just for them. So I think scripting is is super important. And then you can steal scripts from other people. You hear somebody navigate a difficult conversation in a really awesome way, steal that script, use it for yourself, and and be that much better for it. And that really takes us through all 10. Michael, I think this was a great idea for a discussion. I think we could probably do another 20 or 30. And, and, you know, for listeners out there, if you have more ideas for this one, this one could definitely become a series, you know, rules of the road for the new medics and just kind of keep talking. I I feel like we could do this for the next couple hours and give really, uh, really solid advice for folks. But this one is one where if you're listening and you're new out there and you want to give us feedback, podcast at mchd-tx.org. This was Captain Wells Whitworth's first time on the podcast, and he knocked it out of the park. We videoed today, so now you can see how silly we look when we do this. 
let's take it home with the main points. Don't be late. Practice preparation. Never underestimate the power of solid BLS skills. There is nothing basic about proper bagging. Learn how to do it. It's going to save more lives than anything else that you learn in emergency care. Seek out positive examples and mentors. Don't annoy them. Attach quietly. Attach painlessly. And then have that discussion when the dust settles. Be patient, right? You're not going to go from couch to marathon in a week. You have to train, right? Seek as many patients out as possible. Those patient contacts are going to be your wisdom. That's how you learn. That's how you learn to do the job. And, you know, learn how to communicate, learn how to script, and you can do that by watching others who are already good at it. If you have uh, questions or concerns, ideas, again, email us. Leave us a like or review where you listen to your podcast. As always, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.